We're glad everybody can make it today. I know we got a lot of people on vacation. It's that time of year. But we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series called Equip. And it's asking the question is, are we, as, as born-again believers, truly equipped with everything necessary to function in this life? Now, understand what I'm saying. I am not talking about your best life now. That is not what I'm here to talk about. You can read books if you want to know about that. I am talking about from a spiritual standpoint. I don't care physically how we deal with and how we cope, and all of that. I care about how we act. Are we gospel-centered? And what that means. You see, when we talk about equipping and we talk about being prepared, the term equip means to supply with necessary items for a particular purpose. Okay, You have to have everything that you need in order to do the task at hand. All right. Now, let me give you an example. It's my friend Gibbs here, and, and it's nice to have these guys are from Hastings. And Gibb and I go back and forth on barbecue, where Gibb thinks that he makes the best brisket on the planet. And as you all know, he's wrong, right? It was, it was proven. But it was close, okay? I feel like the judges were kind of slanted your direction. Maybe you bribed them. I'm not sure. Um, we didn't have a secondary vote. But, but be that as it may. But Gib can tell you that the art of preparing the perfect brisket requires a lot of stuff. Is that fair, Gib? Yeah. It's not like you just like wake up one day, I've got this giant hunk of meat. Yeah, we'll just do it, you know? Like it's an art form. You, you prepare it. You think about it. It's, it's wonderful. You lose sleep over it. And you like, you taste it. It's like, mm, I don't know. Maybe I need to tweak this. And it consumes your life is what it does. It takes over. I'm not kidding. It's, it's awful. And, and so it's like being equipped, having the proper things to do it. You know what you need to make good brisket to start with? A good smoker and a good chunk of meat. You get a lousy chunk of meat and a great smoker, you know what you make? Lousy meat. You need everything. It's, it's kind of like the, when I talked about the mousetrap. If you have a mousetrap, I wish I'd brought one today, but if you have a mousetrap, it's comprised of about five parts. You've got the base, you've got the spring, you've got the little thing that goes over the thing that kills the mouse, you've got the thing that the mouse gets on with the cheese on it, you know, and you've got the thing that actually kills it. Those are all technical terms, all right? Write them down. You take away any single component of that, you don't catch four-fifths as many mice, you catch zero mice. Zero. In other words, you have to have it all there or it does not function right. It has to be all of it. You see, when we have looked at this from a gospel-centered standpoint of what Scripture says about being equipped and understanding this, we have to understand where do we get our information from. It always comes from Scripture. Now, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've been in here. we read it every week. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What do you need to be thoroughly equipped? Scripture. That's what it says, correct? So this is not my opinion. If you've got an issue with this, take it up with God. He wrote it, all right? But men were inspired by God himself to write what we call scriptures for the purpose of equipping us. Paul talks about in another place that these things were written down for our benefit, that we can learn from the mistakes of the past, the things that have happened, how we interact with God. Do you realize that if you eliminate scripture, you eliminate the basis of what you know about God? Because if there is no solid foundation of which your opinions are based on, they are nothing more than your opinions. It has to be grounded in something greater than what you think, what you see, and what you feel. It has to be more solid than that. We're talking about having a biblical worldview. 
and how crucial this is today probably more than any other time in our generation because there are opinions all over the place. Thankfully, because of the internet, we have places to throw our opinions all over the place, right? We got keyboard warriors everywhere. I don't know if you can call them keyboard warriors anymore. Nobody uses a computer. It's all on your phone. And they will argue with you tooth and nail about the stupidest of stuff. And I'm like, get a job. You got nothing better to do with your time than to argue about every little thing. But that's what they do because everybody has opinions. Okay? I've said it before. I'll say it again. Opinions are like armpits. Everybody has them. Some of them stink. What is your opinion based in? Is it grounded in reality of what we see around us? One of the first series I, I taught on when I moved here was called Worldview. Having a biblical worldview. In other words, what do you filter the things around you that you see through? What is the basis of your opinion? A lot of times our opinions are how we were brought up, the area we grew up in, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's the denominational background you had. The only question I have in any of that doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but is it grounded in Scripture? Because if it's not, then we've got a problem. What I teach every single Sunday, if it's not grounded in Scripture, we've got a problem. It doesn't matter what the source is that's saying it, it matters where the source is coming from. We have to stand on this. Now, we have been talking about the armor of God and how crucial it is. And we've been breaking this down piece by piece. So let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. I've got it up on the screen for you. Starting in verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Now here's what we talked about. We see what we're going against, right? It's not you versus me. It's not us versus them. It is the people of God against the spiritual host of wickedness that's where our source that's the problem that's what we're contending with so this armor has a purpose it keeps us from the attacks that are coming from that standpoint so he says to take up the whole armor remember i said that is the greek word endio it means to put on entire it's like putting on a new suit put on every piece all of it. It all works hand in hand. Now, verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Okay, here's the deal. Here's a misnomer that we have in America. If you're a born-again Christian, the battles are not going to come. How do we judge whether something's God's will or not? Well, if it's something we like, it must have been God's, God's will. We got it. You've been praying for a new car, a new car comes. The $700 a month payment we don't take into effect, but hey, we got the new car, baby. Or if something bad happens, oh man, the enemy's attacking me. Right? Sometimes we're just a victim of our own bad decisions. But we never take accountability of that. We just make these assumptions. So here's the question. Is in what we deal with in this armor, the purpose of it is what? It is to protect us 
from an offensive standpoint and a def- defensive standpoint. We've looked at these different components, and we, we started with the belt of truth. Remember that truth is what everything locks into. This loin belt that a Roman soldier would wear is what locked in every piece of the armor. You'll find out today, because we're talking about the sword of the Spirit specifically, but it obviously, it would hang on there. The scabbard would hang on there. But that shield also locked in there. That breastplate locked in there. The greaves that came up the legs, they would lock in there in different ways, because from every standpoint they had to be protected the helmet was very specific all of these things had specific purposes and uses you eliminate any one point of them and they don't work the other part that you've got to understand is they were individually made henry ford had not invented the assembly line yet each person was putting on armor that was made specifically for them so if I take my armor, and I, I said this last week, I gave it to Jared, what good's it going to do him? Not a whole lot. He wouldn't be able to move, would he? Well, not with the armor. He'd be able to turn upside down inside of it without any problem. But he couldn't walk. It's kind of like David when Saul was trying to say, here, take my armor. He's like, I can't wear this. Did you guys ever see Veggie Tales? You guys remember that? All good theology comes from Veggie Tales. So the armor was individually crafted to each person because it had to fit that person's body. Otherwise, it didn't do any good. So if they left home and forgot something, they got a problem. They are now exposed. So he says to put on the whole armor of God. That implies something. You weren't born with it, and you can take it off. In other words, each and every day, we've got to be doing this. We've got to be prepared. Now, all of these things, you see them in other parts of Scripture. It's not just Ephesians 6. I don't want to go too far back in here. But the helmet of salvation is where we're leaving off. Why? As I've told you, that he says that you may be protected against the wiles of the devil, the methodos, the methods of which he attacks. The battlefield is always in your mind. If he can get you thinking wrong, he will get you acting wrong. This salvation, when it is put on, is his perfection. It's beautiful. It's noticeable. You can see it because as a born-again believer whose faith and hope and trust is always in God, the circumstances of the world may come against you, but you will not be moved by them because you are firmly planted in the concept that, you know what, I know what God says on the subject. I don't care what else is going on. That's not the way the church is today, but that is really what this means, is that when you see this, there's something here. There's something protecting us. There's something keeping us from the darts that the enemy's throwing. The shield of faith that says above all, that does not mean it's the most important. That means that you are putting it above. In other words, if something is to penetrate your armor, it should have to go through your faith. You guys look lost. Let me try this again. I'm going to try this side of the room. Maybe this is the smart side today. I'm going to talk to you. So here's the deal. You've got this shield. All right, you got to put it up above everything else. Nothing can penetrate it. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Good. Will you teach those people? I mean, the thing is, guys, is that if if you've got the shield and it's sitting down here, and you're like, oh, I don't want to put it up. I don't want to deal with this today. What good did it do? Why'd you bring it? You ever met somebody like played intramural sports? Anybody ever play intramural sports? I tell people this. All right. Bear with me. I get asked all the time because you guys know I went to school in Oklahoma. And I was the starting quarterback in college in Oklahoma. No, I was. Why do you say that? I thought we were tight here. We were having a moment there. And I, I, that has been taken away. You have been stripped of that title. Who invited you today? 
man, go back to Hastings, for heaven's sake. There ain't enough beef jerky in the world to make me deal with this. That's an inside joke. Anyway, all right, I'm working alone here. Let's do this. So I was the starting quarterback in college in Oklahoma. And that's where I leave it. What I don't tell them is it was the Bible school, it was flag football, and it was intramural. And the sad part was is I was one of the better athletes. So as long as you don't drill down too far, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But what was funny is there were guys less athletic than I am, if you can believe that. And they would go out and they would buy all the expensive gear. Like they'd do floor hockey. You ever played floor hockey? It's not impressive, okay? And he would buy all this expensive stuff. Was the worst player I've ever seen in my life. You get guys spending $200 on sneakers to play intramural basketball. You, they couldn't hit a jump shot to save their lives. They were trying to cover up their inadequacies with stuff. Trying to make it seem better. It's kind of like when I tell that story. You know, it's like people are impressed. I'll tell you another one. Again, this is, has nothing to do with anything. I just like my stories. But there was one day when I was in high school and the county fair was going on. I made $100 that day on a bet. This came to me in one moment. I thought it was genius. You tell me if I'm wrong. I bet a guy 20 bucks that I could do between two and 300 push-ups in under a minute. If I didn't get it, I'd pay him 20 bucks. If I did get it, he paid me 20 bucks. He's like, really? I know you're all looking at me like, yeah, okay, right. So you looked at me too. And so he's like, I'll take that bet. So I dropped down. I did one, two, three. And I got up and I said, give me my $20. I said between two and 300 Y'all with me? I made it. I am, aren't I? Y'all do math on this side? Yeah, made a hundred dollars that day. Don't. Uh, uh. <laughs> Balance out. Oh, Lord, help us all. We are off the rails. Well, here's the thing. I made 100 bucks that day, and I was pretty darn proud of it. And three was about the limit on the push-ups anyway, so that was about all I could do. But, again, it was wordplay. It was th- so here's what I'm, where I'm going with this. Is it doesn't matter what you say if your heart cannot back up the words coming out of your mouth. See, these stories have a point. In other words, you can talk a big game. But when the rubber meets the road, how do your actions correspond with the words that you've said? You see, the battles are always coming, constantly, one way or the other. They're coming against you individually. They may come against us corporately. They may come against us as a nation. But our response in those crises, in those moments, in those attacks, really determines the victorious position that we're going to walk in. Remember, the enemy goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Quit becoming an entree. We have got to rise up and say, you know what? No, I'm going to live by this. I'm going to stand on the word. The ebbs and flows of our spiritual walk are up and down. We're emotional basket cases. But we wouldn't have to be if we just walk in the position that God has laid for us. So I want you to understand, the purpose of this series is not to make you run around looking for a demon behind every door and thinking, oh my gosh, he's the, my biggest problem. It is designed to equip you that when the battles come, that you can handle them. You're prepared to stand against them because they are going to come. 
My goal as a pastor is always not to get you to depend on every Sunday sermon to get through the week. It's to teach you how to properly exegete the Word of God so that you can stand on your own. I love hearing stories of somebody calling and, they, oh, they were sick, and there's a group of people who went from the church and prayed for them. And I find out after the fact. You know why? Because I don't have a special anointing, y'all. I have a calling. But you don't need me to pray for you. God can use anybody for that matter. I love that. That means that we're at a position where we should be. We're moving in the right direction. So yes, there is a calling that I have, but that doesn't make me closer to God. That doesn't make me more anointed or whatever term you want to use. We have to stand on what God has said. So with the helmet of salvation, you'll notice that it is locked in and the sword of the Spirit, verse 17, which is the Word of God. Now, we use these things and we throw these terms around and we've all got pet Bible verses that we use, but we never break down to see what is happening. What are they talking about? What do they mean? That helmet was very noticeable. It was beautiful. As I've showed you that the word of God, yes, it is the sword, but also locked into truth. Your word is truth. All of these things correspond with one another. But let's look at these swords. There were five different kinds of swords that these Roman soldiers were using. I'm going to break these down for you a little bit. This is what's known as a gladius sword. Okay, There's different forms of this. They look a little different as you go through history, but it was big. It was heavy. It was a, what they called a broad shoulder sword. Because it took two hands to swing it. It was big. I mean, this was not fooling around. Kind of think Conan the Barbarian a little bit, if you will. Great big sword, kind of a lunk, swung kind of slow. It wasn't the most or aesthetically pleasing, per se. Um, and it was extremely cumbersome, and it was awkward to use. You could not be swift with it. It was called a two-handed sword. It was sharpened on one side. It had a, a primary sword used by the Roman army. Uh, they actually used this. They defeated the Carthaginians, or Carthaginians I'm saying it wrong. Um, but they got rid of these because they realized they're too slow. They just didn't work. So then they came up with a different sword. It was one that was, uh, it was a little shorter. It was a little narrower. It looks something like that. Now, I know that looks like a cavalry sword. It is difficult to go through and find these things specifics. But it's something close. So I'm trying to just give you pictures of it. It's about a foot and a half long. Two and a half inches wide. Not super big, but it was a lot lighter. And it was very popular because it was a lot easier to use. Let's face it, we all like easiness, okay? The third one that they used was even smaller than the second one. It was more like a dagger. They had a scabbard that they would keep it in. It, it would just be in the back. Uh, it was used, it was one of those things that it could be quick. It could inject it, pull it out. Case over. Done. So there was a lot of that. The fourth one, very long and uh, slender, something like that. These were actually used a lot by cavalry, by the, the guys that were riding the horses and stuff like that, because they could be fast with it. Um, they would use it in a sport similar to fencing, so they would get used that way. Uh, it had a long reach, very lightweight, very effective. Okay. Now, I know what you're thinking. If somebody comes at you with a sword, what do you want to have? A gun. Think Indiana Jones. You guys know, some of you in the back, you ever seen Indiana Jones? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, a couple of you have. If you haven't, I know what we're doing this week. <laughs> you know that scene where that guy's like swinging the sword, he pulls out the gun? Do you know that was completely ad-libbed? That wasn't supposed to happen. Do you know why it happened? He had diarrhea that day. <laughs> True story. True story. A little free nugget for you. Final Jeopardy question someday. You never know. But the sword here that Paul's talking about is interesting because it 
um, comes from the Greek word makera. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It looks like this. This is one that's similar. You guys may have seen something like that. Obviously, there were always different forms of these. Um, it's about 19 inches long, sometimes closer to two feet, extremely sharp. The tip of the sword, a lot of times, would curve upward a little bit. And the point of it was extremely sharp. This thing was very, very deadly because it would inflict a wound far worse than anything else because of the design of it. Because once they stabbed a person with it, they would put it in, they twist it, and pull it out. And because of that upward curve, you know what it brought out with them? Whatever it grabbed. Yeah, it was bad. Imagine that. It's, it, it, it's kind of gross. It was the most dangerous of them all. It would rip the insides to shreds. I mean, it just left nothing there. And Paul is painting a picture here. Because how we use the Word of God matters. So, put this in a perspective you understand. Owning this is a good start. But utilizing it is a good second step. In other words, if you wait around and you go and grab this off the bookshelf and you <laughs> blow the dust off of it, it doesn't do you any good. You're not prepared. You see what we do often is we wait for the battle to start and then we're like, oh, uh, uh, i got to find something. I can do all things through Christ. We've got to get past that. We've got to look beyond these superficial things. See, there's two words that are often used for word. And we've talked about this before, but let's talk about this. Again, rhema and logos. The word logos we often associate with the written word of God. We would call this logos. Now, it's not quite that simple. It's more in-depth than that because when it says that the Word was made flesh in John 1, referring to Jesus, it is the Greek word logos. So was Jesus walking around as a written word because that's literally what it means? Of course not. He didn't have letters on his face, all right? No face tats for Jesus. But the word sword here is often used for the word rhema. It's spoken clearly, vividly. It's an undeniable language. It's unmistakable, unquestionable. It's used in certain and definite terms. This word rhema carries the idea of a quickened word or what we would call a word from the Lord. So so a lot of us have been in this, this thing. We've been praying, and all of a sudden, we have what we call a word from the Lord. Sometimes that word may be for somebody else. Sometimes that word is for us individually in this situation. Sometimes that's happened to you and you don't even realize it. It's the aha moment. I know what to do. It's something that the Holy Spirit drops into a believer's mind. Now these rhema words are extremely powerful. Now let me show you an example of this. In John 14, 26. It says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, he's talking to the disciples here. Jesus said, listen, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he is going to remind you of everything that I said, and he's going to teach you. So can the Holy Spirit teach you things? Of course. Does that mean that every time somebody says, well, the Lord told me, does that mean that it was God? Of course not. How do we know the difference? How can we distinguish, how can we discern between what God has truly said and what somebody is thinking that God has said? You've got to have something to filter it through. 
It has to line up with Scripture because all Scripture is God-breathed. It has to go through this. So the Holy Spirit may use a rhema to remind us of a Scripture or a biblical promise or whatever the case may be. It's a specific word or message. The Holy Spirit quickens in a person's heart and their minds at a specific time and for a specific purpose. I mean, it's, it's utilized in that way. Now, so you guys can see the difference between the written word and the spoken word. That's certainly important. But understanding the sword and the loin belt, because these two are so inseparable. Without one, the other is unfunctional. The shield would rest on a clip on the right side. It had a clip in the belt at that shield, because it was heavy. Remember, six layers of leather, and then they would rub oil into it every day, and they would soak it in water. Why did they soak it in water? Because when those fiery darts came, it would immediately quench them. Remember, there were three types of dart. Your regular old arrow, the ones that you see in the movies, you know, where they're shooting over the castle wall, they're on fire, and you could see it. And then these other ones that look like a plain arrow until it hit, and it would combust in that moment. So that shield would sit there because it was very heavy. Can you imagine carrying something like that around? It was the size of an average man. You know, 60, 70 pounds they would be carrying it. It had to be pretty tough. And so it would rest in that clip. But the sword hung on the left side most of the time. And they would be able to fight either way. Could they use the right hand? Could they switch it? Absolutely. But both of these are grounded and locked into truth. So as I've said before, you can have your beliefs about this. But if your beliefs aren't grounded in truth, then they're irrelevant. If this is not true then our beliefs do not matter. They're nothing more than opinions. It's the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says this, that if the dead do not rise, this is 1 Corinthians 15, then Jesus did not rise. And if Jesus did not rise, then you're still lost in your sins and your faith is futile. He was grounding it in the very fact that in the first century, just a couple of, not that long past the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, that this was a true event that took place in history. And he tells you that, listen, Jesus, we saw him die, and he was seen by Peter, and he was seen by this guy, he was seen by the women, he was seen by over 500 at once, many of whom are still alive. In other words, go ask them. Ask them what they saw. Because even skeptics today will not argue the changed life of the apostles. There was something different about them past that event. I certainly didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They'll make up every excuse. Well, maybe he wasn't really dead. They just thought he was dead. Or maybe they were hallucinating because they were overcome with grief. Listen, people hallucinate, right? Right. Like, this is a perfect example of this. But Missouri football really believes that someday it can be a champion. It believes it. When you drive by the stadium, the road leading up to it is championship drive. I guess it's called those things that be not as though they were. Right? I don't know. We had too much coffee this morning or something. But, but the thing is, is that here we have this, this word that we know is true. How do we know it's true? Paul is saying, like, listen, go ask these guys. You don't believe me. We don't have group hallucination, unless you're Missouri football. Okay? <laughs> we'll send her the tape. 
So here we've got, guys, the loin belt, as I said, was a representative of the written word of God. Your word is truth. The source for all of these rhema words, these, these spoken words uh, uh, from the Holy Spirit, wherever, has to go through the Word of God. He will remind you of a passage of Scripture at a pertinent point when you're facing moments. You guys experienced that, right? In the moment of that accident, when you're going through everything, what kept coming back? You had the attacks of the enemy. Is this going to be the new normal? Will he make it? All of that. And you got Ethan over there like, yeah, he'll be fine. Bring me more donuts. Right? You had, a, you had both going. It's kind of like in the cartoons, the little angels and the demons. You know, one's speaking one thing, one's speaking the other. That's literally what it is. These rhemas from the Holy Spirit will rebuff anything that the enemy tries to penetrate your mind with. Remember that that methodos, as he goes, it's, it's, this, it's like throwing a rock at your mind time and time and time and time again until he finally breaks through. This is why we must study Scripture. Do you know this? That the word study and the word read are not synonymous. You can read anything. It's accepting what you read as truth that makes a difference. It's studying the scriptures to see if those things which are said are true. I tested a congregation one time. And I don't remember what, what exactly I was preaching, but I was preaching something that was unbiblical. Do you know how many people that was not here, in case you're wondering, were smiling and nodding and amening? Why? What's well, coming from the pulpit? And then I jumped all over them. They didn't do that the next time. In fact, they didn't respond at all after that. They were done like, don't make eye contact, don't do nothing. Like, why? Because we, we, we are just so, we're baby birds. We got our mouths open. We're just like, oh, just feed me. Give me whatever. Yeah, it's got to be right. All of that. We see it on TV. That is why the church today is so screwed up. It's because we have nothing that we're founding our beliefs on. It has to go through this. We must meditate on Scripture. The Spirit of God reservoir inside of us that we, we grab from when we need it. So we've all been in those moments. A verse will pop in your head. It's right in the middle of facing some trial. So we could put it like this, the written word of God, in other words, the logos, is like that big sword. It's broad, it's extremely sharp, it's heavy, it's ready for anything. We swing it around and it's going to do some damage. It will keep them thoughts away as long as we keep swinging it. But when we let the enemy close and let things happen or whatever happens in our lives, that rhema will penetrate anything that the enemy will deliver. We get these ideas of these different swords from, from this philosopher. His name was Vegetius. He was a 4th century. He was a historian. And this is what he says about these swords. A stroke with the edges, though made with ever so much force, seldom kills as the vital parts of the body are defended by both the bones and armor. On the contrary, a stab, though it penetrates but two inches, is generally fatal. You see, it's not just hitting them with it. It's the penetration, the stabbing action. That is what these rhema words, they're short, concise. They don't have to be long. They don't have to be complicated. We just have to do what God has said. Noah received directive from the Lord. Pretty short. Hey, build a boat. That was it. Okay, well, how big do you want to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just build the boat. And what is it? Noah didn't sit there and argue with them. Remember, it had never rained on the earth. Thus, no flooding. Hey, Noah, build a boat. Yeah, that makes sense. Abraham was told by God to leave Mesopotamia and start following the Lord. You know how long that passage was? To pick up where you are and move to a place that I will show you? Three verses. Took him a while, but he got there. 
Abraham leaves. Joseph got a word from God. It's two short dreams about his personal life. Do what he's told. Moses got a mandate from God. Again, all of these people argue with God in different ways, but the bottom line is, is this weren't long thing. Mary's word from God was very short, right? Hey, you're going to have a baby. Name him Jesus. That was it. Okay. But man, did it have eternal consequences. Paul, constantly influenced by supernatural words from God. His entire conversion, can you imagine? You're walking along, minding your business, like, you know what? I think I'm going to kill some Christians today. And all of a sudden, Jesus intervenes. I mean, he has this conversion. Jesus appears to him saying, why are you kicking against the ghost? Why are you coming against me? Changes his life. Ananias knows who Paul is. And Jesus says, here, listen, I need you to go over there and I need you to pray for this guy, Paul. And he's like, I'm sorry, who? You know what he does, right? I mean, his calling, all of this stuff. He received a word from the Lord in preparation of the persecution he's going to face in Jerusalem. God said, hey, this is what's going to happen. His ministry in Rome, the same way. Most of what we would call us callings and the elemental basis of it are these rhema words that are, are out there. The Holy Spirit gives us specially spoken, unmistakable, and undeniable words from God. The majority of the time, the rhema that we need is always going to be found directly out of Scripture. It will relate to some passage in Scripture, something about it, but one thing I can tell you for sure, it will never contradict it. So, I've been in situations, I've been in ministry for a long time. I had a, a fellow pastor one time told me that God told him to leave his wife and marry one of his parishioners. Now, I did not have to spend time like, let me pray about that and see if I get confirmation of that. It didn't take me very long to call him an idiot. Right, I, I mean, it, but, but he, he's telling me that God told him. You can throw anything you want, put God's name on it, doesn't make it so. Okay? I, I, I mean, we've got to understand that. So when we get into this word, this two-edged sword, the two-edged swords are mentioned throughout the New Testament. This is not an isolation uh, event here. In Revelation 1.16, he says, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun, shining in his strength. Please do not go and Google images of this, or you'll see Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. That's not what's happening here. It's weird. But the phrase two-edged comes from the Greek word dystomos. This is unquestionably one of the oddest Greek words used in the New Testament because it is a compound or a compound of two different words from die and stomos, which literally means two mouth. Something that is two mouth. And John is telling us that this sword had two mouths. You could read it out of his mouth went a sharp two mouthed sword. Now I know that's weird, but look at Revelation 2.12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things say he who has the sharp two-edged sword. You could say the same thing. Sharp two-edged mouth. It's the same thing. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, The Word of God is living and powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here we have two-edged. Distomos, sword, mykera. Same word used in Ephesians 6.17. Why is the Word of God repeatedly referred to as a two-edged sword? 
even more correctly, why is it referred to in Greek as a two-mouth sword? Well, you have to keep in mind all the previous swords that we've talked about. The gladius is big and heavy. You got sharp on one side, dull on another. And they had to make sure that they swung it right because guess what? If you hit them with the dull side, it'll hurt. You ain't killing nobody today. Well, I don't think so. But that Makaira was sharp. And a lot of times they would sharpen the top edge of it where it would curve up at the end. So when it penetrated, it would grab more. It made deeper gashes and it wreaked havoc on whatever it hit. When used correctly, whatever was in its way would be laying on the ground. Now, why to mouth? Now, I'm, I'm speculating here, but think about this. The written word of God was given to men inspired by God. It was mouthed from God. It was God breathed, which means he spoke it. Yes? Okay. So it was once spoken by God and secondly spoken by us. Think about this. We see this a lot today. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. These were mouthed and penned by individuals. When do we repeat it? When we see a violation of the Constitution taking place. We are reading and reciting the words. No, I'm sorry, this is the law of the land. Your interpretation of it has to be grounded in the original intent of which it was written. It's no different than the word of God. God has said it. When I use that, I have to use it in the same way of which he intended it. I speak to it. Now think about this. Matthew 4, we've talked about this before. The temptation of Jesus. The enemy comes to Jesus and tempts him in three different ways. Jesus' response in all three ways was the exact same. He took what was written. Jesus physically was not on the earth when those events take place. They were all back during the time of the Exodus. They were all events that took, with, uh, took place with Israel. In fact, if you really dig into it, you can kind of see where Israel screwed up in the same temptation. Jesus facing a, say, the same temptation spiritually undoes what they had done, but that's a whole nother thing. But what's going on here is that he responds with what? The written word of God. He speaks it. So Moses inspired to write it down. Jesus speaks the word. But something else interesting happens there, and we'll talk about this more next week, is that then the enemy quotes two psalms to him. The enemy quotes scripture to Jesus. And Jesus didn't turn around and say, he's like, you know, right? That's right. I forgot about those two verses. Oh, my bad. Thank you, Lucifer. No, he responded by rightly dividing the same word of God. That tells us something. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. It's not your interpretation. It's what was the intent of the author. So it's spoken once by God and once by us. It's a two-mouthed sword. When the word of God was uttered by God, we then take the word by faith because we weren't there for the events and we confess the very promises that it holds. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. You can hear it when you speak it. But here's the thing. If you don't accept it as truth, they're just words on a page. They're just words coming out. You can sit in church your entire life and not be right with God. You can sit in this church the same way. It makes no difference, is what do we do with this? Now, let's look at this again, because this is something I want you to see. This is something the Lord showed me about five years ago. I'd never seen this before. Hebrews 4, verse 12 again. The Word of God, we know what that is, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, here's where it gets interesting. We know where the battlefield is, right? The mind. He can get you thinking wrong. He can get you acting wrong. But the word will divide your soul, which if you don't know what that is, that is your mind, that is your will, your emotions. It will divide your soulish thoughts from your spirit. It divides soul and spirit. Two components, two individual components. It divides your thoughts from God's thoughts. It divides the enemy's lies from God's promises. Now think about it. It says soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intents. If you remove the marrow from the bone, the bone dies. We have to have this. Look at what Hebrews 5 says. Now, verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. So the elementary stuff. You need to be taught this again. Now, we were in Hebrews 4 just before. We're now we're jumping to Hebrews chapter 5. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. What are we talking about here? The word of God. The very word of God. For he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words... You didn't just sit your whole life in a church and hear a bunch of sermons. But because you took those words in, accepted them as truth, and began to put them into practice, you begin to mature. You're no longer living off of milk. And then when those thoughts come, you can discern between good and evil. It's soul and spirit, joint and marrow, thoughts and intents of the heart. Have you ever had a thought come to your mind that was contrary to what God said. If you shake your head no, you are a liar. Have you ever had somebody tell you something that God told me and it is contrary to Scripture? So what happened? Apparently, they still need milk because they can't discern the good and the evil. Now sometimes it's just minor stuff. But sometimes it gets into major stuff that has long-lasting impact. Look at Hebrews 4 again, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, is discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, you've got God's ideas and your ideas, and you've got the enemy trying to infiltrate. And the only way you can filter any of that out is with that sword. It is what separates your thoughts, your beliefs, from what God's intents are. It doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter what we're facing, whether we're facing a pandemic, whether we're facing riots, whether we're facing whatever else happens to get thrown this year. Apparently we skipped over the murder hornets. I'm a little disappointed. I want to see what they could do. It doesn't matter. All I care is what does God say in the matter. When you are facing a circumstance that is dire and you don't know how to handle it, where should we turn? To the Word. What does God say? When He was laying in the hospital bed, all she had to hold on to was what God had said. His promises. She came through. He came through. And Ethan got donuts. It worked out well for everybody. 
Now, Philippians 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more to in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what are we supposed to be doing? Abounding more and more in knowledge and discernment. We need both of those a lot. That you will only approve those things that are excellent. But we have a lot of approval of things that are not today by people who call themselves Christian. I'm not talking whether they're born again. But if you're going to carry the term Christian, which means to be like Christ, then we should follow his precepts as well. Matthew 16. Look what happens here. Verse 1, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now he's scolding them. These are, these don't sound like that's that big of a word, but he's really letting them have it. And He's getting on to them. He's like, no, wait a minute. You are the Pharisees, and you are the Sadducees. You are the leaders of Israel. You are the teachers of Israel. And you can look to the sky and say, oh, well, the weather's going to be good because the sky's red. And then the next morning, like, oh, the sky's red. Weather's going to be bad. Talking out of both sides of your mouth there. And you can do this, but you can't discern the sign of the times. In other words, you did not recognize that Messiah had come. Because they chose not to, ultimately, as you study that out. It wasn't that they didn't see him. They chose not to. He's getting on them about their lack of discernment in the scenario that they are in. Jesus would do the same thing to us today. We don't recognize in the face of adversity what's happening. And we don't deal with it from a biblical worldview standpoint. Let's look at another one. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. I know that's not popular today, but he just told us to judge. I'll come back to that. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now look at what he says. The natural man. You're looking at him. Does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they don't make any sense. And that's fair. You know what the natural man says when you're facing sickness? Get yourself to a doctor. Get it taken care of. You got cancer. You had a good life. Hope it ended well. But the spirit man says, no, 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 no. Do not forget his benefits. Who heals all our diseases. The Word of God says that we are to give of our income and it will be given to us. That all of our needs are met by God, not our jobs, our farms, our investments, whatever the case may be. And yet we're like, well, wait a minute. I can't do that because then how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to buy a PlayStation 5, right, Jared? If anybody wants to chip in on the PlayStation for 5, Jared will take up an offering at the end of the service. So, I mean, but think about that. But, but that's what God says. Why? Because our faith and hope must be in Him. 
not on the things of this earth. You see, there's a distinction between the thought process of the natural man and the spiritual man. They don't make any sense to the natural man because they must be spiritually discerned. The same sermons were being preached to the Pharisees that were being preached to the Jews who came to Christ, that put their faith in Him. What was the difference? Not the hearing. They all heard the same word. It was the accepting of what they heard as truth. You see, this is what the Word of God does. We have the mind of Christ when we have that sword filtering our thought life, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Saying, I'm not going to dwell on this other stuff. I'm going to lean on what he says. Hebrews 4 again, verse 12, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When People today are saying, well, you, you should not judge. Did we not read about how we have to judge all things? If you're spiritual, you have to. We have to make a judgment call in everything. Some people are better at it than others, but we have to. We do it every day, whether we realize it or not. If you like chocolate over vanilla, guess what? You just judge vanilla. You racist. I mean, but, but I mean, as stupid as that is, we do it all the time. If I walk up to Leslie and I say, boy, I love that jacket. I just judge the jacket, but it's okay. If I say I hate that jacket, she'd probably like, well, your taste is pretty lousy anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. Either way, I'm judging. We can't not judge. That's the thing is we have to think because we're getting bombarded from all directions. They're telling us what we should think when all along we've had this telling us how we should think. And what we filter through. This is what will discern the ways of the Lord versus the ways of the enemy, the ways of our flesh, the ways of anything else that's coming against us. Now, we're going to dig into that more next week. I was going into prayer next week, but as I was praying this morning, the Lord kind of put some stuff on my heart. So we're going to transition a little bit. Um, But you need to know this is that when you speak the word, you're literally doing battle with what? Not the enemy, your mind. That's where the battlefield is is your mind wants to believe the lies it gravitates towards the negative your spirit will yearn for the things of god but we must be diligent to be doers of the word you can hear your entire life but until you put it into practice it will do you no good it is time today as we get ready and to go out is i have to have that armor on every day we get up it's like no I will not allow anything that this world is throwing on me. I don't care what's on the news. I don't care what's going on. I am going to stand on this. If you do not, you will eventually get knocked over. You'll eventually get off kilter. You'll eventually go into a direction that will take you far from the things of God. It all comes back to this. But as you're beginning to see how it's not just our Bible per se, but that this entirety of the armor is crucial. All of it is there for a purpose. You see, God has equipped us with every single thing that we need. The choice is ours whether we put it on. The choice is ours whether we decide to use it. Are we going to go out there alone? 